This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Fiona Scott Morton. Professor of Economics at the Yale School of Management about reforms to US antitrust to deal with digital platforms. If there's somebody else in the race running behind me, I'm going to run a lot faster. Suppose that I have the ability to engage in anti-competitive behavior with nobody stopping me. Well, I'll put a 10 or 30 pound backpack on my competitor and then we'll run and I'll have to run a certain speed because I want to win, and whatever my time is, everyone's going to say, isn't that marvelous? Now, if we took the 30-pound backpack off the runner, or even better, we added four or five more runners to the race, then I would really have to move, then I would really be running fast, and my time would come down by a lot because I would be competing. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. If you've been listening to the podcast of late, you'll know there's been a rush of reports calling for antitrust reform to grapple with big tech. Well, today we talk about yet another report. It's a report that's been published by the Chicago Booth Stiegler Center as part of a wide-ranging study of digital platforms. The chair of the subcommittee that penned the report was Professor Fiona Scott Morton, who was described in a recent article as being something of a radical amongst antitrust economists. Now, only in the U.S. would the label radical be given to an economist who supports rigorous antitrust enforcement. In this episode, Fiona talks us through the report, but first she responds to my question about whether we should worry that there are too few female economists. I do share the worry. I teach, actually, MBA students master's students who are seeking to go out and work in the private sector and the public sector as managers. There are plenty of women in that group, happily. The problem is worse when you get to both undergraduate economics majors and then particularly graduate school and then academic uh, track jobs. Do you think it's a problem in the antitrust field, particularly? Oh, it's much worse in antitrust. Yes, there's hardly any women in antitrust. And what would you put that down to? Does economics have an image problem, as the FT suggested? My own theory is that economics is a combination of math and debate. While we've seen at the undergraduate level, for example, real progress in equalizing the proportion of women in hard sciences and math and physics and so on, economics is lagged behind. And I think this is because when you have the right answer in math, you just write down the right answer and that's it. You're finished. In economics, your right answer is not sufficient. You have to deliver your paper in front of a crowd of 30 people, many who will try to prove you wrong. And you have to actually orally convince them that you're correct. And expert witness work is a bit like that too. I might have the right answer. I might've written it down, but that doesn't finish the job. You get deposed or you testify or you have to talk to someone in Congress. And I think that the perception of women in public arguing and being both authoritative and pleasant at the same time is a piece of cultural baggage that we have not yet overcome. 
I think it's a substantial problem, actually. Well, I'm sure having a high-profile economics expert like yourself in this area can only help. Now, you recently chaired a subcommittee that studied antitrust and market structure aspects of the digital platforms, and it was part of a broader study, I should say, being undertaken by the Stigler Center at Chicago Booth. Now, anyone who knows Luigi Zingales, the center director, knows him to be highly persuasive. Did you take much persuading to take on the role? <laughs> yes, it was quite a bit of work. And so the first time he asked me, I said no. And, and he knew to keep asking, Fiona. Yes. <laughs> I'm very glad that I did it because this is a sector that's quite complicated and important. I didn't know as much about it before I undertook this project as I did afterwards, obviously. And there's some difficult elements to enforcing the competition laws around digital platforms. Technique-wise and in terms of jurisprudence, there are some hurdles that we need to work on and overcome. But of course, the platform business model is not new. So maybe in a nutshell, you could share with us your thoughts on just what is it that makes the contemporary digital version of the model so distinctive so as to raise, in the words of the report, novel complexities and considerations? Yes, these largest digital platforms have several characteristics running at once, which we've seen before, but when you put them together and increase the scale, they do, I think, present some novel problems. So you have economies of scale due to low marginal costs, sometimes zero marginal cost. Uh, economies of scope, if I have an installed base that uses my calendar, I can get them to use my email service or vice versa. If I have an installed base buying from me in an e-commerce way, perhaps I can get them to watch movies. So economies of scale, economies of scope, network effects where consumers would like to be on the same platform as other consumers because that lets them talk to their friends, for instance, and post pictures of their holiday or user-generated content like traffic patterns and so on better when there are more users. We also come to two-sided markets or multi-sided markets. Many of these platforms have drivers and riders or buyers and sellers or some set of groups that have to be managed and to which, therefore, these network externalities and scale effects apply. Often, there's just no need for physical distribution, and so there's a global reach to the platform. Not always, but sometimes. And when you put all of those things together, you just get a tendency towards size that is very strong very concentrated markets, and we see very large firms as a result. That's, I think, new. Would you add perhaps to that list of characteristics relating to the digital version of the platform model, also now the propensity to have massive accumulations of data that perhaps is not possible in the case of the non-digital platform model, let's say the shopping mall or the nightclub for that matter? Yes, that's absolutely true. And it goes to the economies of scope point that I was making. If Amazon knows something about what I've been purchasing from them, they have a very good idea about what movies I'm going to want to watch. It is true that past firms have been able to collect data. Casinos have long been known to be good at collecting data and targeting promotions in that way. Supermarkets have had frequent buyer cards for many years, although it's been unclear to me what they did with that data, but in principle, they've got it. So it's not as if the ability to collect data on your customers is brand new, but 
Here we have it being done at a much larger scale. In addition, the development of algorithms and abilities to analyze that data has gotten much better. There's really micro data that we did not have before. So exactly how am I searching online? How many clicks do I take in what direction? How many seconds is there between each click? What is my mouse doing? Where is it wandering around the screen between clicks? This is the sort of information that truly is new to have. So these structural, perhaps, features of digital platform markets, they've been canvassed in a number of reports on a growing academic literature in this area. What I found particularly interesting was the extent to which the Stigler report spent some time on the question of consumer behaviour and how this has implications for market power and competition in these markets. Talk us a bit through the analysis on consumer behaviour in the report and what its significance is in your view. Sure. We have this well-established behavioural economics field that's generated a couple of Nobel Prizes and several decades of research that has shown us very robustly that consumers have particular behavioural biases. They tend toward the default. They tend to underweight the future. They hyperbolic discount. They're impatient. They're over-optimistic or overconfident. And the consequence of those predictable actions of consumers is that consumers actually increase the market power of digital firms through their actions. So how does that work? If a mobile operating system installs a default browser, most people just keep using that default browser. There are pre-checked radio buttons. There's the ability to scroll to page two or three of search results. And consumers don't do any of these things. They don't uncheck defaults. They don't install different apps. They don't scroll to page two. Now, of course, some consumers do, but what I'm speaking about is the, the bulk of the population at any given moment. And the result of that is there's considerable barriers to entry for an entrant and considerable market power for the incumbent because the incumbent can frame anything the way it wishes and take advantage of this default behavior. The entrant has to overcome the consumer's unwillingness to install a new thing or even scroll down to the second page and see an organic result that doesn't have an ad attached to it. It's really a bit ironic. Consumers don't behave in a way that would induce more competition. Now, of course, the counter argument to that would be that consumers behave in this way because, in fact, they think that the default that they've been offered is the best or that the results that they've been shown most readily or quickly are the best for them. What do you say about the behavioural economics literature is obviously indisputable, but do you know of any empirical testing of those propositions in the particular context we're talking about? Oh, yes, there's lots. You can shift people around with great ease. It's clearly not the case that the consumer has done a careful study and realised that the first answer to the search result is the best one. Not at all. The other report in the Stigler conference that was looking at privacy had an experiment where they tried to sell consumers some kind of service that was clearly not a good deal. And 11% of consumers chose it when they were essentially free to choose it. But by persisting and asking again and framing it and pre-checking and so on, the proportion of consumers that agreed to the service went up to 44%. So quadrupling, you can quadruple the number of consumers who think your service is a good idea by presenting it differently to them. So this is not about 
consumers thinking carefully about their choices and determining that the platform had their best interest in mind and put the thing that was best for them at the top. So would you say that the answer to that particular part of the problem posed by digital platform markets is to require platforms not to have these default settings, but rather to provide customers with a menu of options when, say, they first set up their phone to choose between in relation to their browser and their search engine and so on. That's what's proposed by the ACCC in its preliminary report on digital platforms. Is it something the subcommittee looked at? Uh, Not in detail, but let me just say that the extent to which there's framing across the web is everywhere, right? So it's not like there's one answer. Oh, we need to establish some default. Everything you do is framed. So it's not possible to be neutral in framing something. And you want to make it clear and have the consumer be able to move quickly through her choices. So I think what we are seeing here is that the digital space is sufficiently complex. We probably need a regulator for privacy. And part of what that privacy and data regulator can do, establish that consumers own, for example, their own data or have some control over it, what privacy settings might be a default that society thinks is the right one, and then maybe start to develop some guidelines about when it is that choices for consumers have to be structured a certain way. I'm really not the expert in this area, but it seems clear to me that we don't have any rules and that's causing confusion and bad choices. So what are the harms that were identified by the subcommittee as flowing from the features of these markets you've identified? I'm afraid they're a bit dull. It's price, quality, and innovation, just like in markets for bicycles or newspapers or yogurt. But it's obviously not price for consumers, at least not in a monetary sense. Uh, So we have quality-adjusted prices, the typical concept we use in antitrust economics. So, for instance, if there's an airline merger, And prices go up, but the availability of different route combinations goes up. So there's a lot more quality choice in that airline merger. Then an economist will often say, well, quality adjusted price fell, even though monetary prices went up. So we could do the same thing with digital platforms. The price I might pay is a zero monetary price. But if I'm getting lower quality than I was yesterday, then my quality adjusted price has indeed risen. And of course, these platforms making enormous amounts of money, monetary money, and that's coming from advertisers. So there's a normal harm of higher prices for advertising if there were to be anti-competitive conduct that led to those higher prices. Do we know that advertisers are paying supra-competitive prices? We would have to have an investigation to know that, wouldn't we? Mm. And until last week, at least in the United States, there weren't any. Of course, There have been investigations, or at least studies, market studies and sectoral inquiries into digital advertising by a number of other authorities, none of which I have seen conclude definitively, if at all, that prices are super competitive, but almost all of which do point to the opacity of these markets as being the problem for advertisers because they just can't tell whether they're getting value for money on their advertising dollar. Is that something you think is likely to be focused on in the US as well? I don't know, but I will say that if a market is opaque and the buyer has no idea what she's getting or what quality it is, 
that's not a good sign. So imagine that I went to a car dealer and the car dealer said, well, I'm not going to tell you exactly what car I'm giving you. And I'm not going to tell you what its acceleration is or its odometer or exactly how old it is, but I want $25,000. You would be likely to try to find a different car dealer. And I think if you're an advertiser, the concern might be that there isn't a different place to go to, to get more transparency. So the opacity is not in and of itself uh, a competition violation, but it does raise a red flag because in well-functioning competitive markets, one characteristic of those is that the, the consumer's quite well-informed and that's helping her choose. And that is enabling her to choose higher quality products for lower prices. And that's, in fact, one of the reasons that's driving that market toward competitive outcomes. What about other types of quality degradation risks for consumers? I mean, if we put that together with the advertising, do you think that a competition authority could reasonably characterise excessive advertising, however one might measure that, as poor quality? Well, certainly that's traditionally what's happened in other media, like on television, that's funded by advertising. At least in the United States, the FCC has had rules about how many ads per hour of television are allowed to be shown on the theory that the ads were not what people were there for. So that's certainly one direction to go. Another direction that we flag in the report is to think about the fact that because consumers have these behavioral biases, they are attracted to stay online by what we might call low-quality content. And when the platform is ad-supported, the platform cares a lot about the consumer staying online longer. So there's a lot of premium placed on getting the consumer to stay. And indeed, the algorithm is busy testing whether showing you this video or that is going to lead to higher or lower clicks. Showing you this piece of news or that, will that cause you to stay longer on Facebook or wherever it might be? But the ad-supported platform does place a premium on getting the consumer to stay. And Tristan Harris at the Center for Humane Technology has a lot of material demonstrating that the way human brains work, what you want to do to achieve that is to offer outrageous content, salacious content, flat earth, Alex Jones, things that sort of aren't true, but are exciting. And to the extent that that's what's happening to our online experience, I think that could well be viewed as lower quality then that becomes a policy problem in and of itself in a way that if you had a different business model, for example, if I had a subscription business model and I paid so much per month to a site, the site would not be inherently interested in keeping me on for another minute. They want to do a good job so that I continue to subscribe, but they don't really care if I'm online for two minutes, two hours, or two days in a month. It makes no difference. So we see that the business model really has a big impact on what you might call quality. Just to play devil's advocate for a moment, though, as you would know, quality is very much in the eye of the beholder. It's a highly subjective construct. So for one person to say, well, that's just outrageous content that has no value for me in terms of how I spend my time, for another user, they might say, well, that's the stuff I enjoy when I want to switch off. I want to just basically distract myself with material that's got no bearing to reality. You know, those are two extreme possible versions of a user's take on this. 
isn't there a problem with the subjectivity of that analysis on quality and content? No, I don't think so, because remember, the platform is tailoring it just for you. So if you are the person who likes to switch off and do stuff, watch Alex Jones or whatever, then that's what you're doing. And keeping you online for another minute requires showing you yet something more exciting. So the point is not where you start, but just the slope of the platform. That to get you to stay a bit longer, there has to be something yet more outrageous shown to you. So that wherever you start, whatever your tastes are, you're sliding down. Well, we try only to have truthful, thoughtful content on this podcast, so we'll steer away from more discussion about Alex Jones. The other type of quality reduction flagged in the report is one also that's been recognised in other places, and that is basically a reduction in privacy protection as a proxy for poor quality. Let me ask you this. Doesn't one have to assume first that most consumers do in fact value their privacy or more to the point if they had to trade off free services for more privacy, they would prefer free over private? Well, I really think that we ought to be heading toward a policy environment where we, you and I, or the government, are not assuming anything about what the consumer wants, but rather offering the consumer consistent and transparent choices so that she can make that choice. What we have now is 16 pages of legalese with a button at the end, I agree, and you can't open up your phone again or get back onto your Facebook page unless you hit I agree. So people say I agree and they have no idea what they're agreeing to and they have no idea what's happening to their data. So that's not a market, right? If we thought that consumers might value privacy, we're certainly not testing it through that mechanism. So I think that what I would like to see to give the consumer choice and empowerment and to make markets work would be some fairly clear buckets established perhaps by a regulator of for a monetary price of a dollar a month you can have this kind of privacy here's what you can have if the monetary price is zero here's how much we'll pay you for this amount of data here's how much we'll pay you for even more data and if there was some structure that were consistent across platforms and the consumers understood, then they would be able to make these choices. As you say, it might be that 90% of consumers prefer to not be private and be paid for their data or get served for free. But I'm not going to assume that. What do I know? Maybe many consumers would prefer to have some privacy and pay five cents a month, but we don't know because we're not organizing the environment online in a way such that people could make informed choices the way they do about bread. If I go to the store and I buy bread, it's clear what I'm getting, and I can trade off whether I want the organic bread or not for the price difference. There's no way to do that today online. Do you think, though, that whatever might have been the case in the past, even the most recent past, there are some signs, at least if one is optimistic and benevolent, that the tech platforms are starting to compete with each other on privacy. I mean, I just noticed recently Apple's Tim Cook came out with public statements saying it's going to stay ahead of Facebook in messaging by playing up its relative superiority in privacy. And we've heard Zuckerberg say the future is private. And we've seen Google now add the pro-privacy search engine DuckDuckGo to its search options in Chrome. Do you think these platforms have seen the light and starting to 
understand that privacy is important to consumers and might be a source of competitive advantage? I would separate out Apple from that group, but I would say in general, no. I think these firms are observing this podcast and the debate in general and seeing that the winds have shifted and there will be some serious regulation most likely coming down the pike. And of course, if we believe them to be profit maximizing at the present, then regulation is going to lead to a reduction in profits and they would prefer not to have it. That would be my default. And in that environment, you might want to try to head off or delay that regulation by making some public statements and taking some steps that might convince a regulator or two or a podcast host that you're really doing the right thing and government intervention is not needed. I would say that if as a society we want these things, if firms put them forward and we like what the firms are doing, then I would be in favor of codifying that in some kind of enforceable statute in case the firms later change their mind. If we really like what they're doing, then we want to make sure everyone's doing it and it's not exactly optional. Apple has a slightly different business model. Apple has for some years been more protective of what gets on to an iPhone in terms of content and viruses and so on, and has been less willing to share user information. And that is a different kind of business model and therefore leads to a different response when the world starts talking about privacy regulations. I think that those have less impact on a business model that's already emphasizing privacy. No, I think that's right. We have to be very wary of lumping four quite different firms into the one when we talk about regulatory responses. Let's just talk briefly about innovation because you mentioned price, quality, innovation. We've talked about the first two. Can we credibly speak about the large digital platforms as reducing the pace of innovation when they routinely spend mind-boggling sums on R&D and they launch new products and services at unfathomable speed. What's your view on that? This is a very common mistake. Most people say, look, there's lots of innovation happening, therefore this couldn't possibly be a reduction in innovation. Well, there's a lot of expenditure, I said. I didn't necessarily say there's a lot of innovation. (laughs) Okay, the issue is that what you're looking at is the outcome from the market structure we've got. You don't see the outcome of the market structure we don't have. So let's imagine that there was more competition in social media, more competition in search, more competition in a number of other places. And as a result of that additional competition, Facebook was better. Facebook invented more. Facebook spent more. Facebook hired more engineers. Facebook made more innovation. And the same in search. Just saying, I see a number of dollars being spent on research that has a lot of zeros after it, so that must be good, is not the right way to analyze the situation. I think that the easiest way to explain is a running race. Suppose I am alone in the running race. I jog along. I won't walk or stop, but I jog along and eventually I get to the end. If there's somebody else in the race running behind me, I'm going to run a lot faster. Suppose that I have the ability to engage in anti-competitive behavior with nobody stopping me. Well, I'll put a 10 or 30 pound backpack on my competitor and then we'll run 
and I'll have to run a certain speed because I want to win. And whatever my time is, everyone's going to say, isn't that marvelous? Now, if we took the 30-pound backpack off the runner, or even better, we added four or five more runners to the race, then I would really have to move. Then I would really be running fast. And my time would come down by a lot because I would be competing. So saying that we've got a certain speed in the race, and that's really marvelous, none of us has the perspective to do that. We don't know what it would look like if there were more competition. So the relevant question should be, would the pace of innovation and perhaps would the type of innovation we might enjoy be different if markets were not structured in the way they are? I think that type of innovation point is extremely important. Usually when people speak in the United States about both the IBM antitrust case and the Microsoft antitrust case, they point out that after IBM separated its hardware and software and opened up and let other people write software, that we had an explosion in the software industry in the United States that was just new. And when Microsoft relinquished control of the internet by being unable to squash Netscape and other browsers, we had an explosion in innovation having to do with the internet and browsers and then Google and so on. This point that you made is exactly right, that when there's a dominant firm engaging in innovation, in some sense, it sets a direction. Whoever it is running that firm and those top executives are pointing the boat in a certain direction, and they're going that way. If there are other competitors, you might have boats heading in all directions that were different and innovative, and that might be quite exciting. So let's move now to talk a bit about solutions to the problems that the report identifies. Let's start with a solution, if you can call it that, of just do nothing. Maintain faith that the market will self-correct. The report does reject that out of hand, but there are some who do maintain that faith. Why would you say their faith is misguided? The evidence has really accumulated against that position. I would say 10 or 15 years ago, we had new browsers coming in and changes in market share. We had social media sites that had changes in market share and new ones and exit and entry. And when you look at the last 10 years or so, it's really quite dull, hegemonic, not much dynamism. And we're starting to accumulate more evidence of anti-competitive conduct. In particular, the European cases have pointed in that direction. And also just practical talk to venture capitalists and ask, would it be a good idea to launch a new search engine or a new social media site? And they all say, of course not. So it really isn't credible, I think, to say that these markets are going to self-correct. Well, what about we go right to the other end of the spectrum in responses and contemplate breaking them up as a number of your Democrat presidential candidates are spruiking around the traps at the moment. That's something equally rejected by the subcommittee that wrote this report. Why was that? Because it really isn't a well-founded policy that's going to help consumers. I mean, the goal here, remember, is to help consumers. It's to generate competitive markets that give us low prices, high quality, lots of innovation. When you have an anti-competitive problem, the way you go about helping consumers is analyzing it, determining what's gone wrong, and then fixing the thing that's gone wrong, sort of blowing up the firm as a whole. It's completely unclear that that would assist anybody in getting low prices, high quality, and innovation. In my view, it's much 
more professional and effective to think about what the market failure is and how the legal tools that are available could be used to correct that market failure in a way that helps consumers. So if we say the spectrum has do nothing on one end and break them up on the other, I'm not sure it does justice to your report to say that you possibly come down somewhere in the middle there and you start off by suggesting reform to antitrust laws in the US. What's contemplated? Yes, we did want to come down in the middle. That is to say, not those two extremes. It definitely is in favor of generally worded antitrust laws that apply to all sectors, including digital, and that are interpreted by generalist judges. All of that, we think, is a great strength of U.S. antitrust law. But the pieces of it that need some modification, uh, for example, the treatment of potential and nascent entry. In digital markets, let's imagine a market that has strong network externalities, such as social media. Everybody wants to be on the same site, so you get very concentrated markets. You're going to have, let's say, one firm with 99% and a bunch of teeny little ones with epsilon, very small market shares. Well, if one of those epsilons grows to be 100 epsilon or 20 epsilon and has some fraction of a percent of market share, and the dominant firm wants to buy it, the way we carry out the analysis now, we often look at HHIs. Well, market share is hardly going to move with this acquisition. The HHI is hardly going to move. And yet, in the marketplace, there is no competition for the dominant firm except these small little nascent entrants. So if I were the enforcer, I would be quite concerned to protect that nascent competitor. And yet, in the jurisprudence of the United States and the way we do merger analysis, we don't really have good tools to protect that nascent competitor from being purchased. So that's the kind of thing we have in mind, that it's not that we need special rules for digital. We just need to say nascent and potential competition is a very important source of competition in certain circumstances. If that can be proven, those circumstances are in fact present, then these nascent and potential competition should be protected by the antitrust laws. I certainly understood the report to be targeting merger control reform, but what did the subcommittee come to the view on in relation to monopolisation and what many regard as the sort of hollowing out of the exclusionary doctrine by the US courts over many years? Yes, I think we concluded that the evidence has now established pretty strongly that we have been under-enforcing in that area. There has been too much anti-competitive conduct that was not caught by the agencies or the laws or the courts, and that we need to tighten our enforcement by changing burdens, having standards of proof that are more realistic, that don't require the government to, for example, identify the three products that would have been invented if the merger had not occurred, that kind of thing, really not feasible in many situations, to generally tilt the playing field back towards something that's more level instead of a playing field that's tilted toward defendants. In addition to those reforms in the antitrust rules, the report goes further and says that regulation is both a necessary and desirable complement to antitrust enforcement. 
So talk us through just briefly what you have in mind by way of regulatory model and perhaps what it might be based on given some of the other regulatory models across the U.S. economy. Yeah, I think we need a regulator to do two things. The first important thing is to establish the baseline for these issues like what constitutes the consumer's control over her own data and privacy levels and so on. And those have strong implications for competition. If I can control my data and can ask Amazon to send me all my purchases for the last year in some standardized usable format, I could take that and give it to Jet.com and that would enable Jet to make suggestions and serve me as a customer much better than they could if I came just by myself without my past data. So the regulator, though it's in some sense just regulating, is going to have a big impact on competition and the level of competition in the industry. And so that's why we think these are complements. So the regulator needs to do some basic things such as data policies, privacy policies, data portability regulations, I would say open standards for micropayments so that consumers can receive payments from websites for visiting them and giving their data such as traffic patterns or whatever it might be. And that will really help with entry and baseline competitive conditions. Then there's a second thing the regulator can do, which is carry out whatever it is that Congress thinks is necessary in the way of monitoring and controlling large digital platforms beyond what the antitrust laws can do. So, for example, if we were worried about competition on the platform, I'm Amazon and I sell a lot of goods myself as well as having other sellers on my platform, or I'm Google and I have a search engine and I send people to businesses that I own as well as sending them to businesses I don't own. We might want to have a non-discrimination rule the way we have had in telecommunications for many decades. And that's closely related to foreclosure. It might be that such a regulator would be able to identify foreclosure and perhaps stop it or take action against it more quickly than an antitrust authority that has to wait for the foreclosure to have occurred, had an effect, then bring a case, litigate, appeal, and it might be quite some years before there was a solution to the foreclosure, by which time the victim of the foreclosure would be presumably long gone. Well, just finally, a number of the regulatory functions that the report contemplates for this body are functions that have been the subject of regulation in the European Union, as you'd be aware, and I'm referring to the GDPR and the P2B, Platform to Business Regulation, in the European Union at the community level. I know we could spend another whole podcast episode talking about this, Fiona, and it's a matter that quite a number of guests have already commented on, but just the benefit of your views, why is it that the US is lagging Europe on these types of interventions? Oh, I think that that's just because we have a very divided country and therefore a very divided Congress, and Congress can't legislate anymore. It's just not possible. The Republicans announced under Obama that they didn't want him to achieve anything. Now we have a president who, likewise, doesn't seem to have a legislative agenda, I would say, first, but also there's great disagreement 
in Congress. So I think just nothing's happening here. Well, I, for one, would not describe any of the views expressed by Fiona as radical, but clearly there is growing momentum in the movement for change in US antitrust. And it's going to be interesting to watch this take shape over coming months and years. Next on Competition Law, we're joined by Professor Frank Pascal from the University of Maryland in an interview that was recorded before a live audience at the Melbourne Law School during a conference on digital citizens. Until then, you'll find links to the Stiegler Centre's website and the subcommittee's report in the show notes, and always other episodes, links, etc. at competitionlawlore.com. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com, and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. Until next time. Thank you.